Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. I mentioned earlier that we are in this series called The Eternal Kind of Life, and we're looking at how do we live this life that God has for us now. And today we're focused on what he's inviting us as a congregation to in terms of unity. How does that eternal kind of life get lived out in our relationships with each other and especially in our relationships with those who are different than us. And so we are thrilled to have uh, one of my friends and someone who is a leader in our larger conference of churches, uh, just to kind of explain what that is. Some of you may not know this, but Oak Hills is part of what's called the North American Baptist Conference. And Wayne Stapleton, who will be speaking in a moment, is the very impressive title, Vice President of Cross-Cultural Engagement for the North American Baptist Conference. So we're excited to have him here to speak to us today. But the most striking thing about Wayne, I think about this this week, the thing that is unique, certainly in my life, and I know in this church, this will be the first time in the history of Oak Hills somebody has stood behind something that looks like this and delivered something that seems like a sermon who actually, believe it or not, is a Detroit Lions fan. (laughs) Clapping for that? We should be praying for the guy. So, give a welcome to Wayne Stapleton. Thank you. Thank you. Mike is salty because the Lions beat the Packers. Did you know that? Don't hit me. Good morning, Oak Hills. How are you? I'm, I'm a little caffeinated. Uh, my name's Wayne Stapleton. I'm so glad to be here. I want to thank Mike, and I want to thank Sharon, and the leaders of Oak Hills for giving me the opportunity to deliver the message this morning. Um, I've been married now to my wife, Tanya, for almost 24 years. We have two sons, Stephen, who's 22, who's a senior at Wheaton College in Illinois, and Adam who's 19, who's a sophomore at Kalamazoo College in Michigan. I've been NAB for about, since about 99, and I've pastored a church in the NAB. I've been associate at an NAB church, and since the beginning of 2022, I've had this full-time role, vice president of cross-cultural engagement and emerging leader engagement. Um, prior to uh, the full-time role, uh, with that long and, 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 and impressive title, which I'm still trying to live up to, uh, my title was Vice President of Racial Righteousness. And that was a, that title that some people were like, I get it. And other people were like, I don't get it. Why do we need that? Uh, that actually has been said to me. Um, hopefully today you might see why we need that. Uh, one time I had to pick up balloons from Party City. Do you have Party City in California? Okay. I enjoy running errands, and my loving wife gives me many opportunities to do what I enjoy. And I think I'm good at it, but this particular day was different because I had to get all these balloons, and I had to fit the balloons with helium into the car, and then they were all fighting me, and one of them actually went back to outer space where it came from. And all balloons would behave in this rebel, all helium-filled balloons would behave in this rebellious fashion, uh, but they have a weight that keeps them grounded because weight keeps them stable. We carry weight. I once read that, some, uh, that someone said, you don't realize the weight of something you carry until you feel its release. Weight 
refers to, the word weight refers to significance and meaning, something invested with importance. The judge's decision has weight. Legal authority has weight. The words of leaders have weight, but there's no weight greater than the will of God. God's will is the weightiest. In the Gospel of John in chapter 17, there's a passage in which we read that our oneness as a church is significant and has real weight to it. This is the longest recorded prayer Jesus ever prayed. And it's amazing to me that we get to hear the words Jesus prays to his father. And there's three sections in this prayer. The first uh, section, Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prayed for himself. That's kind of amazing. The second section, verses 6 through 19, he's praying for the disciples who are physically there with him. But in the third section, which is what we're going to look at today, he's praying for us. He's literally praying for all believers who would follow him, and that includes us today. And I want to draw our attention to this section. In uh, John 17, verses 20 through 24, we read, I do not ask for these only, the, the disciples who are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be where, with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This morning, I I want us to see that the oneness about which Jesus prays in this section of scripture has weight to it. It's a level of significance that we need to take very seriously. And the reality of the situation is culturally, um, socioeconomically, the church has not done an amazing job with being one the way Jesus has prayed for. There's areas... Here where we can grow. But I want to first make a few preliminary comments about oneness. To urge the church to oneness kind of feels controversial these days. Unfortunately, the church of Jesus Christ, like I said, had been cut up into so many socioeconomic and cultural slices that it seems like we don't consider unity very critical. Not that this is new, but it's never been right. Too often, it seems, those who uh, make the case for oneness have to include caveats saying, like, well, they don't, they're not talking about oneness with people who don't hold theologically sound positions. I'm not advocating for oneness with people who don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. But, but that shouldn't have to be said. On the contrary, the, church, the plea for church oneness is a biblical plea, one for which Christ prays, one which we see throughout Paul's letters, and one which, which we see manifest in Revelation. We should be clear, however, what oneness really is. I don't believe Christian unity requires uniformity. We can have differences. Historically, Orthodox Christians have not agreed on every aspect of theology. We have what some people call second-order issues that should not tear at the fabric of church unity, like the presence of gifts or whether believers are predestined to follow Jesus or how often you take communion or even in what form. Or whether you give an altar call regularly. 
These aren't salvation issues. The oneness Jesus prays for certainly includes the first order tenets of Christianity, like the divinity of Christ, the necessity of Christ for salvation and the nature of the Trinity. I recently received a newsletter from the seminary I attended. I didn't get the preaching award there, but Mike did. Yeah, right. You might be saying, wow, I'm surprised you didn't get the preaching award, bro. No, I'm joking. Um, It reads that the school that we went to strives for evangelical unity by leaning into the old adage in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and all things charity. The provost of the school reminded the reader that to teach another gospel is to teach no gospel at all, but not all doctrinal differences amount to preaching another gospel. In keeping with Christ's prayer, we can choose not to divide over these second-order theological issues and still maintain oneness. But what is this oneness that I'm talking about? What does it feel like? I think we all should be challenged when we talk about this oneness. What should it feel like when you enter into the space where the people of the kingdom of God operate, where the people of the kingdom of God are engaging with one another? What should people feel like? What should the other feel like in that space? This oneness is about love from the heart. It's about being united. It's about being patient with each other, showing humility and and sympathy, empathy for one another. And, and, And I would say it necessarily means it doesn't include, rather, skepticism or mistrust of one another. And this oneness is not only local among followers of Jesus within churches, but it's also for people across services and churches and denominations and across time, even for the 9 o'clock people to be one with the 11 o'clock people. And that can be a challenge. I, I know. I understand. It should be clear that our oneness is in a person that has been one for us. Our oneness exists in the God-man, Jesus Christ, and we already possess this oneness because of what God has done. But our job is by the power of the Holy Spirit to live into it. And candidly, we need to be challenged to do that on a regular basis. And we need to be taking temperature of our own hearts and our own lives as we engage in community to ensure that we're growing in this area. The Apostle Paul knew this. This is why he wrote to the church at Corinth. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. This is challenging in the church. When I was pastoring, I had my share of challenges in dealing with people who chose division. But there also were times when I myself struggled to have a heart of oneness towards someone with sharply different views or historically secondary, on historically secondary issues. And it seems today, in today's climate, people are ready to start new denominations over minor issues. Oneness in the body of Christ should have a tangible character to it. It should feel like preferring and valuing, serving and loving one another. And that's a quality of the life, the Christian life that should predominate among people who call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. Preliminary comments aside, oneness is weighty. And today I want to look at three weights to our oneness from the passage that I read from John 17. Three reasons why church oneness is profound and significant. Three motivators for followers of Jesus to pursue oneness with passion and intention and three rationales that our oneness is not merely a nice to have 
It's not merely an additional thing, but it's critical to our faithful witness as a community to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, three foundational purposes for why there's this position in the NAB. So the first is uh, the desire of Christ. Our oneness has weight because first and foremost, Jesus wants it. Jesus prays for us to have it. That's enough to make it matter. I, I literally could end the sermon right here. But I won't. For faithful Christians, this should be a deal breaker. What more needs to be said? Jesus wants it, and he is Lord. And maybe some of you have that bumper sticker that says, the Bible says that I believe it, and that ends it, right? But because his expressed desire is from a prayer that takes him to a cross, where this is located even in the life of his, in his ministry and in the, in the text is significant. It's like a closing prayer on his earthly ministry, what he wants to leave his followers with right before he goes. Our closing moments matter. When pastors plan services, they think about how they close the service because they're mindful that what you take away from that service is usually close to the last thing you heard. What you leave them with is what you want them to keep, to hang on to. Well, immediately after this prayer, Jesus is arrested. He's betrayed and arrested. His passion for our oneness, which he is about to die for, is on display based upon where this prayer is placed, right before he heads to the cross. Our oneness has massive weight because our oneness is the will of God. And we, all, we know that there are times we may struggle with what God wants for our lives. I've heard it said, don't wonder why God hasn't shown you his will while your Bible's closed. And I get that, even though the Bible does not always give us chapter and verse. The Bible doesn't tell us uh, who we should marry, specifically. It doesn't tell us whether to quit our job to go to seminary or how best to discipline our child. In those moments, we need to listen to the Spirit of God, and we can all grow in that area. But... There are places in scripture where there's no question what we should be doing. And the question is not whether we should be doing it. The question is why we don't want to. Considering how significant unity appears to be to God and looking at his church today, I think it's safe to say that the church, to the church, oneness has not been as important as it is to Jesus. Too many in the church see faithfulness and drawing the lines ever tighter, almost looking for reasons to shorten the table that faithful people can sit at. But that's not oneness. God is Lord and Lord means leader. And as a leader, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And he commands us to be one. But, but it's up to us to live it. It's up to us to live it. And when we live it, we bring forth what I would say the second weight of this oneness is this, the display of God's glory. Now, I know that you've heard this before, but I'm going to restate this quote because it's from a solid theologian. It's biblically true, and it kind of slaps us in the face. Dr. D.A. Carson once wrote the following. What binds the church together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they've all been loved by Jesus himself. They're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. He mentions education, race, income, politics, nationality, accents, and jobs because 
that's so often how we're split. And you can hold to the most uh, sound, historically sound doctrine and theology and still make excuses for why you can't be one with people who, who did differ on second or third order issues or even just culturally. The oneness of natural enemies in the name of Jesus is a display of his glory. Jesus got it. When he was a small group leader, he had uh, a guy named Simon the Zealot in his small group. This man was characterized by his nationalistic passion for overthrowing Roman rule. And in the same small group, he had Matthew, a guy who actually collected taxes for Rome. I would love to have heard how those guys interacted with one another, but they were in the same band of brothers, the same small group united by Jesus Christ, coming from different ends of the, at that time, in that area, political spectrum. And I would not be surprised if both of their beliefs were transformed by the submission to Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. That they, my, my guess is if they were transformed by Jesus, they probably didn't remain ground in their positions on either side of the spectrum. They probably grew toward Jesus and in doing so grew toward one another. It's strange how that can happen and, and it doesn't feel like it's happening the way it could or should be today. This kind of oneness is the brotherly love that Peter exhorts the church to grow in. It's favor toward one another in the body. And when we love with this kind of love across these earthly, fleshly differences, we're proclaiming the glory of God to the onlooking world, but even also to each other. When we, well, actually, really, when we pursue this oneness across economic or racial or cultural or whatever the kind of lines are, we actually are opening up the space to be agents of healing for people with their wounds and their brokenness in our church context. And when we don't, we're choosing not to. Jesus prayed to the Father in uh, verses 22 and 23 of the passage that I read. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The, the oneness of a diverse church is expected by the Lord to literally be analogous to the oneness Jesus shares eternally with his Father. That sounds crazy and impossible. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus seems to think it's doable. It's interesting that God could do whatever he wanted to, to show or prove or reveal to the world that Jesus was sent by him. But Jesus literally says in this passage, the way people are going to know that the Father sent me is by the oneness of the people who believe that. How Oak Hills displays unity, fellowship, family love, despite real differences. Differences not that don't matter, differences that really matter. Not where you're coming to a squishy middle, but you're choosing to overcome those differences because you love Jesus and you love one another. And you want his glory to be displayed in your relationships with one another. This is how Jesus intends for the world to know that he came from the Father. And this is why it matters. He prays in this passage that our oneness, in verse 21, he says it helps the world believe, the onlooking world believe. And then in verse 23, that the, for the onlooking world to know that he was sent by the Father. That they'll believe it when they see the oneness, and then they'll know it when they see the oneness. 
The oneness of people who all look alike and vote alike and think alike and have the same income and cultural heritage and educational backgrounds would not really be that remarkable. You can find that at Kiwanis Club or at a Rotary Club or at a Block Club or in a fraternity or a sorority. But we're, we are the church of Jesus Christ and God is up to something supernatural among very natural people. The church I planted, I didn't plant. The church I pastored, I restarted it. It was about to close, and then I came with some other people. So sometimes, sometimes we feel like it's a plant. It's a restart. The church I restarted in, in Warren, Michigan, just north of Detroit, just under 10 years was diverse. It was probably 70% white and 30% African-American. Members had different politics, different ethnicities, different economic status, different musical tastes, different educational levels. I mean, we really literally were split, not just in a racial context, but even in an economic one, with some neighborhoods in the Detroit area that were more upscale and neighborhoods outside of the Detroit area that were not as upscale. So there were all these kinds of differences. And you could see, like, the, 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 the tension between people who came from these different areas certainly manifested itself in conflict. But we knew what our mission was. Our mission was to work on being one as best as we could. And we hoped that when people came to church on Sunday, what they saw were a bunch of people who looked different and had real differences, but who loved Jesus and subsequently loved one another. There were times, I distinctly remember, when staunch mask haters put on a mask anyway out of love for one another. And there were times when I, like, kind of... um, set somebody off by asking about the mask, and it turned into something that I was scared I started. So there was that. There are instances of one's preference of music was not on the schedule, but they worshiped the Lord passionately anyway. Like, I'm always a fan of the question when somebody says, I don't like to worship, and then you turn around and say to them, well, that's good because we're not worshiping you anyway. <laughs> Jesus says that the kind of oneness that we were trying to display, and listen, it wasn't easy. Right. It, I mean, we I sat there watching conflict over these very areas that I'm talking about. But the, 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 the reality is our goal is not to avoid conflict and try to live out the Christian life as safe as possible. Our goal is to live out the implications of the kingdom of God and walk right into the stuff faithfully that God wants us to walk into, confront it and overcome it with his love and his truth. Church oneness displays the glory of God. And sometimes I think um, because we are, you know, it's America, it's the 21st century, we can be so individualistic that maybe we can forget the, that uh, a, a testimony is not just what a human has. A community can have a testimony as well. How the community relates to one another can be just as much and not even more of a testimony than just what happens to a particular person. And when folks see people united in Christ across social, cultural, generational, and all the other kinds of differences, that oneness will point to him. I think um, sometimes Galatians 3.28, among other places, kind of gets taken out of context and misinterpreted. When Paul wrote to the church, um, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He did not mean, and we know this, he didn't mean this. He didn't mean that those categories didn't exist. He didn't say there are no more Jewish people. That's ridiculous. Actually, literally in Romans 9, he talks about his kinsmen according to the flesh. He still identified as a Jewish person. He didn't mean there were no slaves or freaks because he knew there were. He didn't mean that there were no males or females. Lord knows we know he didn't mean that. 
So he had to mean something else. What did he mean? He meant that in Christ, these categories, while they still existed, were redeemed and transformed, not just individually, but in relationship to one another in the context of their community. What it meant to be a slave or free, what it meant to be male or female was transformed because of the glory of God and the nature of the relationships with one another. But I think it raises the question, you know, we talked about it's the desire of Jesus because we hear Jesus pray it out of his mouth and those words are in red so that's even more significant right and we say it's the display of God's glory when people are making these kinds of choices to be one with people that they normally wouldn't be one with because of the Holy Spirit has united them that's significant but the other question is kind of should we seek oneness and unity with hurtful hateful or dishonorable people I think it gets more practical here Because our oneness does something else to us that's important, which is why it is weighty. How many of us have ever had a health scare, like a real serious health situation that was dangerous? When a disease threatens life, we don't figure out how to live with it. We don't refer to it as a blind spot. We seek the destruction of the disease, don't we? We don't abide by any middle ground when life is threatened. We want treatment. We want answers. We want the eradication of the disease. What if the things that that, that hindered oneness, what if we saw them as disease? There are times when some things need to die so that other things can thrive, and our spiritual journey is no exception. The oneness Jesus prays for us to have must destroy the things that separate believers again church oneness is analogous to christ's relationship to the father if that's the case the ch- being in the church is more about we than it is about me christ's passion for our oneness requires some things that we bring to the table to die so that what the holy spirit wants to do in and through us can actually thrive and live i remember um reading when i got re-excited about jesus after years of Stopping going to church uh, was Luke nine twenty three, and where Jesus says, and he said, it says, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I have to say that, I mean, this is a significant part of even what I'm, what I'm trying to teach and do in the NAB. Uh, I actually, uh, my title is cross-cultural engagement, and one of the ways to look at it is, of course, cross-culture, right? Across cultures. But sometimes I like to think of it like cross-culture engagement. Like, what's a cross-culture look like? What's, what does it look like when, for you to take up your cross? And then you have to ask yourself, if there's things that I lean into and things that I think about that separate me from my brother or sister in Christ, is that reminiscent of, of does that point to a dying Savior who was dying for his enemies? Is that what that looks like? What do we have to deny so that we can follow Jesus? Because clearly he seems to think there are things we have to deny. Or he wouldn't have said this. What is biblical oneness destructive to? Many of the character traits God expects Christ followers to have are not just about our isolated individual personal righteousness. Not just about how we do our taxes or whether we eat that second slice of chocolate cake. Which are always these benign examples, I think, that I get frustrated about. Because that's not the stuff that's tearing churches and families apart that Jesus wants to heal. He wants to heal deeper things. 
I mean, maybe you shouldn't have the second piece of chocolate cake, okay? I didn't say you should. So I have a list here of things that, 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 could, that could destroy our unity that have to die, but it's not an exhaustive list because we don't have that kind of time. Examples include self-centeredness, pride, cynicism, the need for control, and grudges. Biblical oneness is achieved by putting to death self-centeredness and giving way to sacrificial, selfless, cross-shaped love. You recognize and embrace the reality that your preferences will not always rule because it's not about you. Biblical oneness is achieved by putting to death pride and giving way to humility. You will recognize and embrace the reality that the pursuit of oneness in Christ will open you up to the fact that just because some people have different perspectives than you do, that doesn't make their perspectives unbiblical or wrong. Even if they make you uncomfortable. Biblical oneness is achieved by putting to death cynicism and giving way to hope. Cynicism is the spirit of the age, and I think as God's people, we need to oppose it. But you recognize more and more the reality that though churches are made up of wounded people in need of a savior, and there are hurts and pains, if you look with spiritual eyes, you can see God moving, touching people's lives and changing their hearts. Biblical oneness is achieved by putting to death the need for control. You lovingly enable the leadership and thriving of others, even or perhaps especially those who are different than you with different styles than you prefer. Biblical oneness is achieved by putting to death grudges. You forgive, you repent, you reconcile, you make yourself available, you listen. And so doing, you allow others space, not just to be themselves, but even to draw toward you. I'm not saying that the destruction of our rebellious nature happens all at once. As we grow in our faith, this destruction is really it's the process of sanctification said a different way. It happens over time. It's a process. Grace is required. We are God's ongoing project of being conformed to the likeness of his son. But this conformity, it's the goal. Just like diseases need to be eliminated so people can become healthy, and thrive, that this destruction must happen if we're being conformed into the character and image of the God-man. Christ calls us to love others the way he has loved us, with loving concern for others, not just ourselves or those who look and think like us. The things which hinder oneness in the body of Christ must be destroyed, but we must first recognize that they're in us, not just out there. I'm excited about, you know, you guys have been talking about true self, false self for a long time right now. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here. Cries for justice must not be ignored if the love of God reigns in you. One Sunday after Dante Wright was killed, I was preaching in my church. And before the, uh, I started preaching, I got up uh, before the sermon and I said to the White people in my congregation, I said, when something happens like what happened to this African-American man, your African-American friends might appreciate it if you just checked in with them and saw how they were doing. That's all I said. And then I went on with the sermon. Um, And the sermon was unrelated. After the sermon, I went back into my office, and one of my attenders came into my office. Kind of, she broke the speed limit. She came into my office pretty strongly and said, do you think that shooting was racist? And I said, I never said that it was racist. I just said, check in with people. Then she asked, do you think all white people are racist? Because there's a political party that is saying we are. 
And I said, I don't believe all white people are racist. My life choices would make zero sense if I believed that. But I did say that as followers of Jesus, we acknowledge all manner of evil that's in our hearts. We admit that we can struggle with materialism. We admit that we can struggle with lust and idolatry and self-centeredness and pride and cynicism and grudges. The notion of man's depravity is a fundamental doctrine for so many people. As well as the ongoing work that even after we follow Jesus Christ, we recognize must be purged in our lives during this process of sanctification and growth. And yet, for all that, I didn't understand how come racial bias couldn't be one of those things. Why it didn't make the list. Like if the oneness of Jesus prayed for, that Jesus prayed for, will thrive among his people, there are things in us that have got to die if we're going to grow this way. And we often know what these things are, but sometimes we try to deny them. And our oneness and our spiritual growth is hindered by this denial. Biblical oneness is not on your terms and it's not on mine. Biblical oneness is on Christ's terms and the weightiness that come, comes from the fact that when we submit our personal interests on behalf of the interests of others, our character more and more conforms to the character of the Son of God who died on a cross for sins he never committed. If your idea of oneness is about your preferences at the expense of other people's preferences, you're sacrificing nothing, and that's not biblical oneness. That's domination and assimilation. So all the challenges I think we have in the church, we're in a moment where we're getting the opportunity, seems like even more and more, to lean into this area, to take seriously the desire of Christ, what he prayed for, to recognize the fact that when we honor him in this way, we're displaying his glory, but also recognize that our spiritual growth is completely tied to whether we're willing to do this or not. In a cultural moment like this, I've been in a lot of conversations over this topic because that's what I have to do for a living. And I've heard a lot of people arguing a lot of things. What I haven't heard enough of is people asking, what's the Holy Spirit trying to say to us in this moment as a church? How does he want us to lean into and respond to this? Usually the focus is on the person who's saying the things you don't want to hear. Not what the Holy Spirit is telling you through them. In June 2021, an article came out that attempted to diagnose the fracturing of evangelicalism. And in this article, uh, Michael Graham, who wrote it, identified six kinds of categories of evangelical Christians that, were being, that they were being split into. It's a good article, but the following statement, which appears at the beginning, I just found interesting. He said, this fracturing that the church is going through will be, likely be irrevocable. Not because our gospel essentials are not unifying enough but because the divergence of ethical priorities, cultural engagement, racial attitudes, political visions or illusions, and their implications for philosophy of, of philosophy of ministry mean that unity is fundamentally no longer tenable. That's a really strong statement. In other words, this fracturing isn't going to change because people are choosing to organize around something other than the desire of Christ. They're choosing to organize around ethical priorities or cultural engagement or racial attitudes and the rest. 
The reality is, in Christ, we already have this unity. He is one it for us. Our job isn't to create it. Our job is to live into it, given the resources he's given us by the power of his Holy Spirit, by the, by the awareness and, and, and obedience to the word of God. And I believe the spirit of God is leading us practically toward this oneness right now. The newsletter article that I referred to earlier gave like four different things that we could do to pursue oneness as a church. And I just want to end with reading these four and, and, and praying over us as a congregation. One of the things they said was, if you want to pursue this oneness in the context of the body of Christ, as you're talking with each other, see in new ways, reflect deeply, recognize that diversity, a lot of kinds of diversity, not just racial or cultural, maybe it's economic, political. Recognize that diversity is a gift from God and see yourself as a member of a community of difference, not just as an individual. The second thing they said was listen to understand, speak to serve, listen and give space to the person who's communicating before you. Use, have humility, resist judgment. And when you speak, speak in a way that edifies. The third one they said was be authentically you, become a new we. Think about when you say we as the church, who are you talking about? Seek the interests of others above your own. That's in Philippians 2. Don't be haughty. Recognize you're part of one body. That's in Romans 12. The fourth thing they said was honor the presence of Christ. Seek his will together. Stay mindful that Christ is Lord over every issue we face and every relationship we're in. Seek his direction in unity. And we know that his oneness, that our oneness rather, is his will. God has empowered us by a spirit such that we have everything we need for life and godliness. Our job is to take his desire seriously, to recognize exactly how he calls us to display his glory and to love him and one another enough to willingly destroy the things in us that fight against his purposes. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious Father, I thank you for Oak Hills. I thank you for these moments. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for the challenge. I thank you for the hope that we can have that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God. And not only uh, is his will important or significant, his will is best. His will is best for us. And so I just pray, Lord God, that we trust in you and trust in your word and trust in what the Holy Spirit might be saying, whispering to each and every one of us right now in this moment. Help us to discern what you might be calling us to, what you're leading us to, what you desire from us. And help us to hunger for your glory in a world that desperately needs to see the beauty of your kingdom. I pray over Oak Hills all these things for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.